Alright, uh, let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, we do just thank you for this day, for um, our friends, for our family, for the life that you've given us. It's good. Even with the difficulties and even with the trials, um, life is good. And so, Father, we just want to remember that. We want to remember the relationships that we have, the love that we get to enjoy and the love that we get to give. And we want to be able to look forward to when we'll have that same love but without the trials and difficulties. And so um, just turn our eyes on you, turn our eyes on heaven, and may we place our hope there. In Christ's name, amen. So what we're doing is this is a collaboration message. And basically... Um, this is a message I've been kind of building up to for like two years. And I've had a, a lot of interesting thoughts on the church, what is the church, analyzing the church. And a lot of my views on church have just been completely smashed to pieces in the last two years um, since we started Antioch. And so this message has kind of has been on the burner and, I, and a bunch of other things. I wanted to give it like a month ago and it got, kept getting pushed back. But basically... Uh, <laughs> It's just a huge deal, kind of for me that way. And I call it collaboration because the word collaboration sums up a lot of what I've begun to, to view about the church. It's funny, when, when Paul began writing the word church in, in, in those days, was just the word, the Greek word for gathering. It, it meant when a bunch of people kind of got together. And, um, and he kind of took that word and then he gave it his own kind of meaning. He baptized it and made it mean this kind of official gathering of God's people. And it's interesting, I think we've kind of reversed back to um, not really understanding. We've kind of gone beyond Paul in some sense and made it this institutional word. And we've lost the original sense of just people coming together and gathering. The word collaboration is kind of a, a normal word like you know, gathering was to Paul. And I'm trying to in some sense do to that word for me what Paul did to the word church. And it's give it this symbolic importance of, of what the church is supposed to be. It's, it's what we be, we are the church. We're supposed to be the church. We're supposed to do it together. And collaboration is kind of my word for that. Um, so that's kind of where this comes from. But where, where it gets started is here. Um, there's something in the, in the leadership cultures that's, that's kind of the bedrock of, of leadership thinking and leadership theory. And it's the word vision, that, that vision, which is basically a clear picture of a desirable future, okay? That the word vision, that concept vision, is, is at the, the core of leadership. And if you don't have vision, you can't really lead well. And if you're a good leader, you have vision, which is a clear picture of a desirable future. And then not only do you have that picture, but you communicate that picture very effectively and on a regular basis so that everybody in your organization can rally around that one common goal and know where they're going and there's clarity. Because when there's not clarity, there's confusion and there's kind of chaos and it's, it's not an optimized system. It's not very effective or efficient. So the idea is that you're here and you, the leader needs to have vision and he needs to cast that vision and drive the organization towards that vision. Okay, does that make sense? So if, if, uh, if you're going to start a restaurant in Bend, you're going to start a restaurant, and the vision is we want our restaurant to become the restaurant in Bend that people go to. 
It's like Cheers, you know, where everyone knows your name, so that we get a lot of repeat business, so that we become the most established restaurant over time with the regular people. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the hard thing is, is that everybody else in Bend that starts a restaurant is going to have what? Same vision, right? Um, and so you're going to have to implement a strategy to outcompete them, kind of in some sense, for this vision. Okay. Now, when it comes to churches and the church culture for the last 20, 25 years, leadership thinking and business thinking has been very prevalent and, and has really tried to, to help the church understand that you have to have a clear vision, you need to articulate it well, so that everybody can unify and reach this goal. One of the most prominent churches in America was started in 1980, and the senior pastor got up on the first day and said, someday we will have 20,000 people in 40 acres. Very clear vision. Someday we will have 20,000 people in 40 acres. Guess what? They have more than 20,000 people in 40 plus acres. Okay? Very effective business vision strategy and clear. Every new person to that church in the last 30 years heard, got a copy of that sermon and they knew what the vision was. Very clear um, implementation of kind of this, this leadership principle. Okay? So this is what I, I kind of came into when I went to seminary and as I worked my way through grad school is that someday when I planted a church, I had to come up with a vision as the leader that was a clear picture of a desirable future and that I had to cl uh, clarify and refine that picture to such a high degree that it would be compelling for everybody to rally behind, unify us, and that I would have to on a regular basis put that out in front of the people and move them in that direction so that we would someday attain this vision or this goal. Okay? One of the verses that the Christian leadership gurus use to kind of say that is they use the, the King James Version of Proverbs 29.18, which says, um, For lack of vision, the people perish. For lack of vision, the people perish. Now, it's a butchery of the meaning of that verse because the, the same sentence continues on and says, um, But he who has the law, um, he who obeys the law, happy is he. And the word vision there that, that they're talking about in Proverbs is a clear understanding of God's purpose um, for our lives in terms of righteousness, how we're supposed to obey him. And if we don't know about God and what he expects of us, then we, we can't follow that. But he who obeys the law, happy is he. But we've kind of, in the leadership culture, just taken that for a lack of vision that people will perish. Why? Because it makes this look very spiritual. I mean, that's really why, okay? Um, why else would we read out of the New International Version every single day until all of a sudden we want to quote a verse that says what we want it to say and we jump back to King James? Okay, now I'll be honest with you here. I've used that verse in the pulpit before um, because I felt that I was supposed to be a part of this culture that led well that did a very effective job of communicating and selling the people on the vision or the idea that there needs to be a unifying vision. Okay, but I want to read for you now something from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And this is a, a book that Bonhoeffer wrote when he was, uh, he was in exile before World War II in Germany, kind of in this underground seminary. The church in Germany had kind of married with the Nazi party and there was a bunch of theologians and pastors that kind of broke from that, and they started an underground church called the Confessing Church. 
the ones that actually confessed Christ and weren't married to the state and to Nazism. And they had this underground seminary, and he lived in community with these other people in that school, in that seminary. And um, Bonhoeffer wrote this book uh, out of his time with those people and kind of his reflections on it. But I want you to listen to what Bonhoeffer says. It's on the board, okay? Uh, I want you to listen to Bonhoeffer here. This is what Bonhoeffer says. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. And the man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. And when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. And so he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. God hates visionary dreaming. Wow. What is Bonhoeffer saying? Bonhoeffer is saying that when an individual, senior pastor or whoever, comes into a community and creates an ideal or a dream or a vision, that now his whole credibility is tied to that vision. And he has to force everyone to follow him or his leadership is called into question. If he cannot, if he says, we're going to reach this goal and we don't reach that goal, then that means what? That either he was wrong, either that he was a bad leader, um, it just means he's a failure. And so, what happens is this goal becomes an idol. It becomes something that is more important than following the Holy Spirit of God. It becomes the be-all, end-all that we have to attain because that person's credibility is built on that. And so now God has to back this vision and the people have to back this vision. And if it doesn't go right, then the pastor or whoever created that vision begins to get frustrated at others. So you want to be involved in ministry. Well, your desire doesn't really fit our vision. So forget your desire. We need you to plug in right here. Okay? Or uh, an opportunity comes to do something, but it doesn't fit the vision, and we force it back into the vision because we have to move this way. This is the goal of the community. This is what holds us together. And it forces God to meet that. It forces the people to meet that. And if we don't attain it, it's the people's fault. You guys didn't do it well enough. You're a bad church. Or God, you let me down. I was a good pastor. I, I developed a clear vision of a desirable future like I was supposed to. Every 30 days, I sold it on the congregation. I motivated. I moved them towards it. How, after all of that, could you not help me accomplish that vision? And so it makes an idol out of the vision. Does that make sense? It's what Bonhoeffer's saying. 
So the interesting thing is, is when we went to plant Antioch, um, just uh, through a lot of circumstances, Tam and I went into it just really beat up, emotionally, tired. We kind of stumbled into it backwards. And so when we started on the first day, there was no clear picture of a desirable future. I, I, I didn't have a number or acres like I was supposed to. All we knew was just kind of like who we were. Like, you know, we, we like art and we, we want to like be about other people, not about ourselves. We, we kind of just knew some of our values and we stumbled into the church, but there was no clear vision. And, and I knew that, but I was too tired for it. And so I figured, you know, I'll get around to it. You know, come a couple months in, I'll do a series on vision or something. And, and by then I'll, I'll have it and we'll just stumble forward. And a really interesting thing happened. Um, just some examples. Right out of the get-go, we, we bought a sound system and we knew that worship was important and, and quality was important and, and music was important and art was important to us. We, you know, we had them in, as values and we bought a sound system and the guy that we bought it from comes to run the sound at, at one of our pre-launch services. And the next thing we know, they're, they're in between churches and the next thing, next thing we know, they become some of our best friends and join the church and they're there from day one on. And um, he's now playing drums, you know, behind us. But so with him, then a bunch of his friends that didn't have churches, um, that are studio-quality musicians, all of a sudden find the church. And so right out of the gate, all these musicians are coming, and we're like, wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and then something else that was interesting, we started at the Regal Theater, and, and uh, I was sharing about the church somewhere, and... And I was sharing how we were going to be starting in the Regal Theater, and there was a couple there that Sunday, and they had just moved to town a week earlier, and they came up crying after the service, and they said, you know what, we moved up here, only knew one couple in town um, to be the assistant manager at the Regal, and we didn't know why we were here. And then we just heard about you meeting at the Regal, and, and we now know why we're here. And for over a year, um, the Wongs set up and tore down at the Regal, um, got there and changed the movie times to make sure we had the whole hallway to ourselves. Uh, unlocked, first one there every morning. And they still continue to serve and to help every single Sunday. And so all these kind of random things started happening out of the blue. And, and it began to continue that way. And about three months into the church, I stood up on a Sunday morning because I had realized something that week. And I just simply said this. I said, uh, hey, um, this week as I was analyzing Antioch, I realized that uh, all the cool things at Antioch, um, I never saw coming. I never had a plan for them. I never was able to envision it. I, I didn't have an idea that it was about to, I didn't go after it. It just came out of left field. And as I continued to look, the things at Antioch that were a little bit off or like messed up or bad, like they all had my fingerprints on them. And I, I think I, I actually shared some specifics back then. But I said, hey, so I learned something this week. And it, and it really was something huge back then. It was, it was, I learned that week that God will build his church. Now, I didn't learn it like as a doctrine. Because um, Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. And Paul says, hey, I, I planted and Apollos came in water. But God makes things grow. If you're a gardener, you know that. You can plant, you can water. But the whole grow part, I mean, that's really out of your realm, right? And, uh, and I knew that. You know, I, I, I knew that. I would, have, I would have said it to anybody, but there's a difference between knowing something 
in really getting something. And that week I got it that, you know what, um, God's going to build his church. And so we began kind of at that point to start stepping back and saying, you know what, we want to position ourselves so that at any moment God can and just might bring something from left field and we want to be able to follow. We want to be able to not have blinders on or be obsessed with our goals or our vision, but we want to just say, God, you know, when the pillar of fire or the cloud or whatever, you know, like in the Old Testament, when that moves, we want to be able to follow. And so some fascinating things happened. We got a, our associate pastor, Brandon, when a, a, a church, River Rock, merged in with Antioch a year and a half ago. Um, we had a, a Bible college. A bunch of us had a vision for quality education and, and for... Um, classical education. We had a vision for a lot of these things, and we thought 10 years down the road, maybe there's going to be something cool at Antioch. And then out of the blue one day, I'm driving out of Starbucks, and I get a call. Hey, how about if we give you a Bible college? You know. And then uh, Dan and I are sitting down over coffee and dreaming about what would happen if we made a pitch to World Relief about creating this thing called World Relief Next, where in a lot of ways we could be out in front of that, in front of that organization rethinking the way the church in North America does missions and the way a, an organization, relief organization like World Relief, connects with North American churches. Wouldn't that be amazing if we were able to just get out in front and kind of like do that? Um, and these things just all started happening out of left field and, and lo and behold, like we never envisioned them. We never would have dreamed of some of these things. God can do more than we ask or imagine. So what that means is we shouldn't build an idol out of the things that we can imagine. We should expect bigger things than that. And we should position ourselves to respond accordingly. And so this, this story of Antioch has just been this amazing exercise in random things coming out of left field, confirming, at least to me, that God builds his church. Now, I was sharing this with, with uh, my class at Killens College, and it was interesting. Somebody asked me... Um, Well, how in the world can you move forward without vision? You know, I mean, that's a logical question. You know, I think there's a chance to pendulum swing to the other side. And I said, well, here's the thing. Um, first thing is when you look at God, the way God typically works is it's much more like a scatter graph, which means it's completely random and, and it looks a lot like a story. It's not this linear business model. We start here and we're, gonna, and we're just going to follow this linear model and to reach our vision. It's like random story. Like you don't know what's coming. You don't expect it and you wouldn't guess for it. You wouldn't even believe it. I mean, think of Joshua, okay? Here's Joshua. He's going to go like start this major campaign to take over the promised land. All right, you're going in. You're a general. You're going to take over the promised land. And what's your vision? We've got Jericho in front, in front of us. The vision is we're going to steamroll it, just absolutely steamroll it, and it's going to build morale, it's going to build credibility, and, and we're going to basically set ourselves up for the rest of this military campaign. Great vision, right? Along comes God and says, God, um, says to, to um, Joshua, hey, Joshua, I've got, got a better idea. Instead of steamrolling um, Jericho, how about you, um, you, you take your army and act like a marching band and circle the city like over and over and over again in weakness um, and then blow a bunch of trumpets. That sounds like a really good idea. Why don't you do that, Joshua? Joshua's just like, that doesn't make any sense. 
okay, it's random, but I'll follow you. So they do this, Jericho falls, and I think that Joshua probably stood back and said, you know what, oh, that was a great idea. Because we've got a different kind of momentum now. It's a momentum going into this campaign that says not that we're a great army, but that we serve a great God. It's not based on our size or strength. It's based on the size of our God. And you know what? That is far more important than just having a, a notch on our belt. You know, God kind of knew what he was doing. And so, you know, first of all, what God does is a story here, which means that you walk forward with your hands open saying, when doors open or when an opportunity comes and multiple people, that's why I have an elder board, multiple people are able to discern that, okay, and say, look at the coincidences there. That's just crazy. We call that coincidence with a capital C, right? Then you're able to move down that road, okay? That's kind of the scattergraph thing. But this gal asked me in the class, she says, How do you, what, what's the vision that you operate under? There's got to be something that binds you together. Now listen to what Bonhoeffer, it's not on the screen, but listen to what he continues with. You know, he says, God hates visionary dreamers, right? Listen to what he continues with. He says, that dismisses once and for all um, every... Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Okay? God hates visionary dream and yada, yada, yada. Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship. Because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ long before we entered into common life with them. We enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness, and by his promise. So what Bonhoeffer is saying is the ground of the church Okay, on this rock, the confession of Peter was, you're, you're, the, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, right? You are the rock, you know, and there's this play on words, and Jesus kind of says, and on this rock, okay, I will build my church. The foundation of the church is Christ. The head of the body is Christ. When, when we come together to be the church, because we are the church, we do it with what, what, what comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, what does that mean? It's like, like religious gobbledygook, right? No. What that means is we have a vision like what Proverbs meant when it says, for lack of vision, the people will perish. Our vision is a right understanding of how to live righteously. Here's a couple of verses. First Peter 2.21 To this you are called... Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Micah 6.8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Romans 12.1-3 says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. For this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When the guys are asking Jesus, like, hey, what's the biggest command so that we can follow it and check the checkbox? He just says the greatest command is this. You just love God and love other people. And so we as a Christian community, we can develop a vision. See, it's, it's not like 
capital V vision that we've made an idol out of. It's lowercase v that says we know how we're supposed to live and we trust God to lead us as we move forward. Lowercase vision is this. We love orphans and widows. We help people that are in need. We take from Christ and from God the grace that he gives and we realize that it's going to produce this wonderful, bountiful thing in our life as we give it away. Grace was never meant to be hoarded. It was meant to be passed along. When you think of a pond where there's only one inlet, it's just dead. When you think of a stream or something like that, there's an inlet and an outlet and there's an abundance of life and grace was supposed to beget grace and love begets love and the lowercase v is simply this, that we follow in his steps, we live as he lived, we, we carry out the values and the kind of life and the kind of vision for people that God has because we get that from Christ Jesus which is our head, which is our ground, who is our Lord, who is our high priest and our king. It's just real simple that way. We act a certain way. We are a certain kind of people. I've got a family that now has four kids. And uh, we've got a great house, and, and I've got a great job and all this other stuff. But you know what? Those things are pretty small in comparison to my family being together. I mean, if you've got kids, you know this. If you're going to have kids someday, you'll, you'll learn it. But if you've even just got best friends, you know, that you've got a tight community with, You'll get alone sometimes and you'll sit there and think. You say, you know what? This is really all that matters in life. The health of this community, the health of my family, the fact that we're together is more important than my job. If I lose my job, big deal. We'll find a way to survive. If we lose this house, then, you know, <laughs> we're, at least we're together. You go back to the Great Depression 70 years ago, and, and I thought about it in my mind. I'm like, you know what? Um, I bet there was guys sitting there going, you know, I've got no job, we're living out of the car, but at least my family's together. This togetherness is the most important thing. It's always there as a supreme value. And what happens is, is this is the vision that drives us. If, if I were to go into my family and say, we've got this goal, five years from now, we're going to be here financially. We're going to be in this kind of house. And we're going to make it all, like, serve that purpose. I'm just getting it all wrong, aren't I? We, we have this kind of an idea. We live this out on a day-to-day -day basis and trust God because we don't know what will come. In James, it's fascinating. James chapter 4, he goes into this whole thing about the humble and how God will exalt the humble and not the proud. And he concludes that section by saying, you know what? Um, you don't even know if you're going to live tomorrow. So don't say, hey, we're going to go to this town, do this kind of business, do this or that for this period of time and make this kind of money. He says, don't say that. It's ridiculous. What you should say is, if it's God's will, we'll go here and do whatever. Like it's this submission that says, I don't know what my story holds for me. It's, it's amazing because I think if we look backwards, everyone in this room would say, this is how my life has looked. It looks a little bit random, and it looks like a story, and I never saw anything coming. And then we turn around, and we look forward, and what we immediately try to do is state our goals and say, but this is how I'm going to move forward. That just seems illogical, doesn't it? If this is how life really works, then we ought to position ourselves for that kind of life. And that's what James says. If it's God's will, I've got a lowercase v, not an idol that I've made, capital V, vision. Jeremiah says this, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for a man to direct his steps. That we have a certain humility where we're willing to follow God. 
as he leads. So here's the interesting thing. I, I, I kind of imagined in my mind somebody going up to Jesus and saying, I want to start a church for you, and uh, someday we're going to have this many people in this uh, number of acres. And I just thought to myself, what would Jesus think of that? I, mean, I think Jesus would just be like, you and I, like, I don't want to go to coffee with you. We've got nothing to talk about. You know, in the Old Testament, it's fascinating. God says, I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the biggest nation. I wasn't after size. I was after a, a relationship. I wanted to be your God and you be our, my people, okay? I wanted this relationship. It wasn't the size. And half the time, like, if someone disobeyed him, you'd wipe out the whole clan, you know? Hey, you just lost 30% of your members. Like, he wasn't into growth that way. And in John chapter 6, Jesus, you know, has a bunch of people coming to him, and he says all these ridiculously sounding things like, you know, you have to eat me if you want any part of me. And they're just like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I'm the bread sent down from heaven. I'm the manna. And they're just like, you sound crazy. And like, almost all of them leave to where Jesus looks at his own best friends and says, are you guys going to leave too? You know, and the guy that comes in and says, the vision that's going to bind us together is this many people and this many acres. I think Jesus would just be like, you just, I, I don't know what we're going to talk about. Jesus wasn't a real good church growth practitioner. So here's the interesting thing. Um, I think sometimes we want the testimony without the test. And we make comments like, uh, if the Holy Spirit were to leave the church, how long would it take for us to know? If the Holy Spirit were to really pull stakes and, and leave Antioch, how long would it, would it take for us to know? And I think if we're following this business plan, I don't know that we'd even ask that question until we reached our goal and we started taking stock of what next. We've got a good strategy. It's a good business. We're implementing it. Um, we're really smart. We've got a lot of highly capable people and we are working our strategy out, and we're, we're seeing success and results. Um, on this one where you're following, and saying, you know what, we're, we're just trying to love people and watch for where God opens doors. I think you'd know right away if, if the Holy Spirit left the, the building. You know what, what happened? There's nothing happening anymore. It, it seems like it's gone silent. God, what's going on? Are we doing okay? Is there something that, that where we've gone astray? Do we need to stop and back up? Um, let me ask you this question. Uh, who wants more of God? You know, I, I think if I ask that question to 100 different groups, I'll get a 100% response. Who wants more of God? Well, I do. And you know why I would get a 100% response is simply this. It's like asking uh, who wants Michael Jordan to play on their team. Well, I do. The question is this. If we're playing our game, who wouldn't want someone of that skill and that talent and that ability to play along? The real question is, is are we willing to let go of our idols to submit to God and to follow Him? And, and matter of fact, are we willing to close our eyes and to walk by faith and not by sight, as it says in 2 Corinthians 5.7. Are we willing for life to become less certain 
and less sure so that we can be on God's team. I think we asked the wrong question. Um, We'd all want Michael Jordan on our team. Jesus ran into a couple guys that were like, hey, I want to be a part of your team, um, but I, you know, I've got to go do this and that and the other. Um, can your agenda follow my agenda? And Jesus said, no. And then Jesus said to another guy, hey, look, you can't handle what I'm doing because you, you enjoy comfort too much. And I don't even have a place to lay my head. And what he's really getting at is that we have an agenda and our agenda gets in the way sometimes of our being able to follow God. And there's a fascinating thing that happened, I don't know, what, 10 years ago or something. There's a book that came out by Henry Blackaby, and he had this amazing quote. Henry Blackaby said this, he says, Don't ask God to bless what you're doing. Find out what God's blessing and go be a part of that. And I think that expresses the whole thing, that there's a story going on, and we've got to let go and, and have that be where we're at. It's interesting, I started thinking, geez, this is a, a church sermon. How is this going to apply to people in their everyday life? I was talking with a guy, Matt, a couple of weeks ago, and he kind of was chuckling, you know, and I was giving stories of, like, um, you know, Jesus staying in the temple courts and his parents leave, and he says, this is where I had to be, and they're like, you're a bad son. He's like, no, I'm following my story here. Um, Gideon, like, has to get rid of a bunch of shoulders so that his army's small enough that when he goes and routes the other people, God gets the credit. And so there's all these illogical things that happen when we follow story. Abraham, I still think it's the funniest story, you know, um, if his wife had woken up that morning and said, Honey, what are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to sacrifice our son, you know, that God gave us through the promise. And all the future nations of the world are supposed to come through him in some sense. And, you know, oh, okay, you know, when do you think he'll be back? Um, Abraham doesn't tell his wife. He gets up really early and leaves before she wakes up because it's illogical. It doesn't make sense. God's story doesn't always make sense until it's done and you can look backwards and understand it. So we have to let go of our agenda and be willing to walk down that road. And so I'm talking about these things. My friend Matt chuckles and says, hey, I'm living that right now. I've made a commitment to God to, to just give him my life, not do anything but to just live in solitude and silence till January and not have any plans mapped out. And I just I laughed. I said, how's that going for you? You know, that's got to look really good. No job, you know, like no direction. You look really responsible. But I think he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And nobody else has to get it. He just has to know that he's following and he's walking humbly. And I think we all have our agendas and we all have our dreams and our visions and we all have these goals that we just feel like all of life has to bend to. And somehow when we walk um, by sight, it becomes a really disconcerting thing to think of walking with our eyes closed. So how does this show up? I think it shows up in how we pray. We'll know if we're walking by faith and how we pray. Because our typical prayers are like this. Jeez, God, I need help. Jeez, God, I need more money. Jeez, God, if you would only provide this. Jeez, God, you've got to get people behind me. Um, and, or we turn the other coin and we, we whine. Hey, it's frustrating, God. That person's getting in the way. That person's the problem. I'm running into these obstacles that you haven't taken care of. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you blessing what I'm doing? Those are the kinds of prayers that we, we typically pray. I pray that we hear all the time. And I think if we really understand this, we step back and say, you know what, God? It's really hard right now, but help me to put aside my own agenda and to just do what you would have me do. 
Help me not to see this person as a problem, but as a part of my calling and my ministry. Help me to love this person. And Father, if, if this block, or this obstacle, is your will to turn me a different direction, give me the ability and the patience to let go of the things I wanted to do and explore another option. Jeez, God, this is just really hard. Give me endurance. Give me patience to walk down this road. You know what, God? This is really hard for my family. They're having a hard time following me down this road. Help me to lead them well, to be tender enough and gentle enough to bring them along with me because we, we don't understand where this is going. And I think our prayer life really shows whether we're walking down our own road or whether we're really living kind of with just this sense of, I don't know what tomorrow holds. And then I think it translates into our worship because if we come in on a Sunday morning and we think it's about comfort, all we're going to talk about is whether somebody's on key, whether it's the right style, whether we like that instrument or not, whether it was the right song choice or not, because it's about our own sensibilities and our own taste. Whereas if we're really just crying out to God all week in prayer saying, I need you to help me to continue on. I can't do this alone. And we get an opportunity to be with other people that share our faith walking down that road together. And it's not going to matter what the song is or what it sounds like. We're just happy to be here. Because we're blind, like we've got our eyes closed and we're walking by faith. And anything that we can just put our hands on to feel like we've got a shoulder to hold to for a while, that sense of comfort, we're going to take it and we're going to be glad for it. And so I think it shows up in these areas. I have a friend who I went to seminary with who's a pastor down at Rock Harbor and he wrote a book called Jesus of Suburbia. And I was thinking about that title and, and I just kind of came up with a couple phrases that I think I'd really identify the church in America, and it's simply this. We want our visions more than we want God. And we want comfort, not responsibility. And we want the blessing, not the challenge. We want to be, we want to be warmed by the fire rather than be in the fire. Seriously, we want to come to a church that's exploding and it's energetic. But we don't want to be the part that's exploding and energetic. Why? Because that would require something of us. We want to know the story rather than to be in the story. We want predictability instead of God's sovereignty. And we want sight, not faith. And I guarantee you that if God told us the whole story in advance, that'd be the last time we'd talk to him for a very, very long time. I've learned when my kids come to me for help, they just want me to solve one part of the problem. And as soon as I do, they run off and they say, I've got it, Dad, I can do it from here. And I guarantee you, if God told us the whole part of the story, we would take control and we'd begin doing it on our own strength. And that'd be the last time we talked to God for a while. And I love this Philip Yancey quote. I, I come back to time and again, and Yancey says this, Nothing apparently bothers God more than the simple act of being forgotten. Nothing apparently bothers God more than the simple act of being forgotten. And if we create our idols and make all of life bend toward that, God stands by on the sideline waiting for us to let go and begin to follow him. I'm going to read you a psalm as a closing prayer as the band comes up to lead us in worship. And if you want, you can just close your eyes. And this is Psalm 121. And it simply says this. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And he will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Instead, he watches over Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep.
The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm, and he will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. If we trust, then we'll follow. Amen.